This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. The title of this episode is 500 Years, Part 1, The Stage is Set. Since we're rapidly approaching the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we begin a short series on its beginning. Now, most would do so with the career of Martin Luther, but as longtime Communio Sanctorum subscribers know, I usually buck the trend and do something else. Why disappoint? So we begin with a look at another monumental figure of history that just so happened to be in that room that day at Worms when Luther was on trial for his ideas and writings. He's known to history as the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Charles was born in 1500, the eldest son of Philip the Handsome and Joanna of Castile. Now this was right at that time in European history when in world history class, We all gave up trying to sort out how the kings and queens of one region became the rulers of so many others. Suffice it to say that Charles ended up inheriting the rule of a vast swath of European countryside in Western, Central, and Southern Europe, as well as the Spanish colonies in the New World and Asia. His domains spanned some 4 million square kilometers, or over 1.5 million square miles. While we often refer to the British Empire as that one on which the sun never set, that accolade, well, it was first attached to Spain's empire under Charles. He became the king of the Spanish Empire at the age of just 16 and was elected Holy Roman Emperor three years later. He was heir to three of Europe's leading dynasties, the houses of Alois Burgundy, the Habsburgs, and the Trastamara in Spain, which united the famous houses of Castile and Aragon. The union of the Holy Roman Empire with the Spanish Empire under Charles meant the closest that Europe had come to a single monarchy since the time of Charlemagne in the early 9th century. Growing up, Charles had the cream of the crop in terms of tutors. Being groomed to rule, he spoke French, Dutch, Spanish, Latin, and passable German, which he said he didn't really care for as a language. He once quipped, I speak Spanish to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to my horse. His many thrones meant that he was called by many names. Among the Spanish, he was Carlos, to Germans, Carl. The Dutch called him Carel, and the Italians, Carlo. It's one of those odd quirks of history that Charles V should come to his thrones right at the same time when the realms of Europe were growing weary of monarchies and turning away from distant rulers to more regional leaders. When the people of Europe were questioning the civil status quo because medieval feudalism was beginning to dissolve, the long-held assumption that government was provided by nobles, led by a king, was being reviewed and analyzed by scholars. Options were being suggested. Other forms of governing were being discussed. And there was a growing suspicion of those at the top of society who acted as though their privileged status was immutable. Change wasn't in the air yet, but it was certainly on the ground and being quietly discussed. French concerns over Charles's attempt to establish a holistic European hegemony precipitated a war that saw Charles recovering a significant portion of territory in northern Italy. In the Battle of Parvia in 1525, he led a decisive defeat of the French 
and captured their king, Francis I. But France quickly recovered and renewed the fighting, which lasted through the rest of Charles's reign. It was this conflict that led to the development of the first modern professional army in Europe, a group known as the Tercios. Charles also had a major threat to the east in the form of an aggressive Ottoman Empire. After seizing eastern and central Hungary in 1526, the Ottomans' advance was halted by their failure of their siege at Vienna in 1529. Then, a costly war of attrition ensued. It was led by Charles's younger brother, Ferdinand, that also rested through the rest of Charles's reign. Equally damaging to the land losses in Eastern Europe to the Ottomans was the Ottoman domination of the Eastern and Central Mediterranean. A third sphere of turmoil was Germany, the very heart of what was supposed to be the Holy Roman Empire. But Charles was opposed by several German princes who'd opted for a new religious reform movement known as Protestantism. They'd formed the Schmalkaldic League in their demand for greater sovereignty over their realms. The question that historians wrestle with today is to what degree these princes were genuinely motivated by religious convictions and how much was due to their seizing on the religious cause as a means to break loose from the strangling grip of the Roman Catholic Church. When Charles was unable to force the compliance of the German princes to his edicts banning Protestantism, it moved to war. He won a decisive victory in 1547 against the Schmalkaldic League at the Battle of Mühlberg, but he was forced to concede the Peace of Augsburg just eight years later. He abdicated at the age of 56 because, well, he was exhausted, and rightfully so after facing some 40 years of unrelenting stress. He retired to a monastery where he died two years later. Well, I want to back up now to when this amazing figure around which so much of history flows was a mere 21-year-old. It's 6 p.m. on the evening of April 18, 1521, and he's sitting in an improvised hall in the German city of Worms, uh, of about a population of 7,000, settled along the Rhine, 20 miles southwest of Frankfurt. It's Charles' first time visiting his German lands. Standing in front of him is a 37-year-old German monk named Luther, whose writings have ignited a firestorm of controversy. Luther speaks German. Though Charles will later learn that language, at this point, his grasp of it and the nature of the hearing requires that everything be translated for him into Latin. That's also for the sake of the large number of Italian church officials who were in attendance, there representing the Roman Pope. You see, Luther is on trial for his life. He stands accused of heresy, a crime punishable by death. The day before, April 17th, Luther came before the emperor for the first time. Laid out on a table in the hall that had been converted into an official imperial chamber for this important occasion were Luther's many writings. In fact, there were so many of them, Charles at first expressed doubt that a single person could have written them all. Surely, Luther's opponents had overplayed their hand and added more volumes to the pile. But no, they were all Luther's works, made possible by the prolific use of the new invention of the movable type printing press. Luther was on record. His words, fashioned in ink and set into books, lay now on the table as a witness to his views. 
Luther was summoned to Worms to recant, to declare before the highest authority on earth in the form of the emperor and the highest authority in the spiritual realm, the pope, represented by his legates, that what he'd written was an error. His views on the nature of the gospel, salvation, and the church, detailed so clearly in all those books, now he had to publicly declare that they were wrong and he no longer believed them. Furthermore, he would no longer promulgate them. So on that first day, when told to recant, Luther looked at that stack of material before him and hesitated. It had been four years since he'd first tacked his 95 theses on Wittenberg's castle church door. And during that four years, he'd written a lot. And the fact is, his ideas had evolved. Well, less evolved as grown. Uh, Those ideas had matured. Luther hadn't fundamentally changed his views, but the way he understood and expressed them had. A square hadn't turned into a triangle, but its four sharp corners had been slightly rounded by time and reflection. So when he was called on to recant, Luther hesitated. Maybe there was something he'd once written that he no longer regarded as valid, or maybe a better explanation would turn something that the authorities had balked at into something they could go along with. Luther needed time to consider all of that and to thumb through the works to see. And so he asked for a day to consider his reply to the demand that he recant. The imperial secretary wasn't pleased by this request, but the emperor granted it. Students of history love to debate Luther's motive for asking for time. Many think that it's a simple case of prevarication, that Luther was afraid and tempted to relent and cave to the pressure to recant. Others see his request for time as a sincere attempt to make sure that the materials in front of him were, in fact, all by him and not someone else. What if Luther had boldly said at the first challenge, I stand by all of this, as he waved his hand over the lot of the materials, but then his prosecutor picked up a volume and proceeded to read out of an anonymous work that Luther hadn't penned that was blasphemous and inflammatory. Hey, listen, the history of trials like this show that such shenanigans weren't unknown. We'll never know Luther's real motivation. All we do know is that he asked for a night to ponder the challenge, and he got it. With the dawn of the new day, it was time to answer. There would be no more delays. He was sternly instructed by his interrogator, Come then, answer the question of this majesty, whose kindness you've experienced in seeking a time for thought. Do you wish to defend all your acknowledged books or to retract some? Luther's reply was careful. He said that his books were of three kinds. Some were purely devotional in nature, simple encouragement to a life of faith that no one could object to. A second group of books belonged to a, well, a long tradition of works calling for reform of a corrupt and moribund church. Luther expressed his conviction that such books as this could not be gainsaid since others had already pointed out the very same things and had not been censured for it. But the third group of books were a different matter. Luther conceded that they contained ideas that may have been expressed in terms too harsh. But that stylistic caveat aside, it was their veracity and alignment with Scripture that ought to be the deciding factor, and so he issued a challenge. He said, quote, I ask by the mercy of God, may your most serene majesty, most illustrious lordships, or anyone at all who is able, either high or low, bear witness. Expose my errors. 
overthrowing them by the writings of the prophets and the evangelists. Once I have been taught, I shall be quite ready to renounce every error, and I shall be the first to cast my books into the fire, unquote. And with that, Luther stopped talking. But the court felt that he'd not been clear enough in his reply. Was he recanting or not? The emperor's spokesman pressed him. Luther paused, then repeated what he just said, but in different words. And it's those words that we remember. Quote, Since then your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, neither horned nor toothed. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it's well known that they often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Unquote. And with that, Protestantism was born right in front of Charles V, the most august of the German nobles and a board of Rome's keenest theological and legal minds. There may not have been a collection of such luminaries prior to that for several hundred years and would certainly not be for hundreds more. And there stood Martin Luther, seemingly alone, but in fact, quietly being cheered on by several of those German nobles who were just itching for an opportunity to break away from Charles and the strangling grasp of Rome. That Charles didn't immediately give the order to seize the recalcitrant monk seemed to verify their suspicion that the 21-year-old emperor was unsure on how to proceed. Maybe that lack of confidence on where he stood with the nobles would be enough of an opening for them to pursue their larger agenda of an emerging independence. And it all hinged on this stocky monk and his revolutionary ideas. Luther had come to believe that scripture clearly taught truths on such things as human nature, the way of salvation, the Christian life, and how the church ought to be led. But that those truths had been horribly obscured by the very officials who ought to have been their faithful stewards. Luther seemed to present a new way forward in which believers would follow the Bible rather than religious authorities. Some historians have treated Luther's trial at Worms in April of 1521 as if all that mattered about it was Luther's memorable speech. And all that follows is regarded as pretty much just a natural consequence of what he said. Instead of being arrested and executed, Luther was whisked off into hiding by his prince and protector, Frederick the Wise of Saxony. With some intrigue, Luther grew out his hair and beard and took on the identity of one called Junker Jorg, uh, the Knight George. It was there that he gave vent to his conviction that scripture ought to be the basis of all life and practice by producing a magnificent translation of the New Testament in common German. Now commoners could read the scriptures for themselves. They no longer needed Latin speakers or church-trained scholars to tell them what it said and, even more importantly, what it meant. The crack that began in that improvised hall at Worms quickly widened into a breach through which the streams of Reformation flowed. Mm -hmm. 